and welcome to Show and Tell with Christopher Biggins. This is the podcast where I invite one of my friends to tell me about three things that have a special meaning to them. Big or small, new or old, their selections are completely up to them. And I'm sure that whatever they bring along will strike up some unforgettable conversations. So without any further delay, it's time to welcome our show and teller, Leslie Joseph. Leslie is best known for playing Dorian Green in the popular sitcom Birds of a Feather. She's also known for stepping out on stage. Her theatre work includes Annie, Hot Flush, Godspell, Calendar Girls and Young Frankenstein. Hello, Leslie, darling. How are Hello, you doing? Hello, because I'm doing very well. Thank you very much. Yes, strange time, but I must say I've come through it singing and smiling. So, uh, no, all good. You've lost some work, haven't you, during this pandemic? Well, I have. I mean, it's been strange. I, it's strange, Christopher, because I've lost work and I've gained work. I mean, I've lost the main musical that I was going to be doing, which has now been put forward to next year. But at the same time, I've sort of... I know it sounds weird, but I've sort of gained a lot of... Going back to basics, really, and remembering, I know it sounds silly, what life is about and just calming down and not running around like a lunatic and just really having time to smell the roses. I must say that when it first happened last year, I've never seen such blue skies and I've never seen such lovely flowers and it was like everything started to blossom again. And what I did, and I very deliberately did this, was to actually say, okay. I'm not working, but I'm not going to spend this time thinking, oh, my God, I'm not working and being upset and unhappy and doing all that. But I want to actually sort of focus on the positives, which were that, you know, you literally can wake up and smell the roses. So um, that's what I did. So it, it, I sort of got through it all. But it was strange, obviously. I think you're absolutely right. We, what we did was we forgot the smell of the roses. I know. I know. You know, and it, and it, and it did re- resurrect in us what life was all about. I think it did. And I, I, I think now that we're coming out of it and now we're going through it, it's really funny because there were, there were huge steps forward that I did. For example, when you fill the car up with petrol. And when I was going actually to the garage, I downloaded a Shell app. So great, came in, switched on the app. It said, what pump are you at? Oh, pump number 12. <laughs> pump number 12 is now ready to serve you took out the pump, undid the thing, put the petrol in, filled it with petrol, got in to pay, and it went wrong. And it said, I'm so sorry, you'll have to pay in the kiosk. This is not working. And I literally burst into tears because it was the first time (laughs) I'd been out in 10 weeks. And if you'd seen me when it first started, I would literally go out the front with a scarf over my head, with rubber gloves on. I'd bring in the the shopping and then I'd take off all my clothes and shower. And I thought it was completely (laughs) ridiculous. It was like a real paranoia. So when I then had to go into a shop and actually pay for petrol, it was a huge step forward. And I did it, got back into the car and shook for about 10 minutes. Once I'd done it once, I suddenly thought, oh, do you know what? I can do it. So I I gradually, step by step, got back into life. And now I'm finding, I know it sounds silly, but just going and having coffee out, meeting people, sitting on a bench with a cappuccino in a takeaway thing before you could actually go inside and enjoying a cappuccino in the open air was like something amazing because yes. you ju- it was just reconnecting with all the tiny things and that's what I found really 
quite yeah quite wonderful actually so it has sort of made me appreciate the little things that um yeah we lost during the pandemic now leslie uh, can you remember because we've known each other for so long we've been such good friends for a long long time and but can you remember exactly when we met? No, I can't. Can you? I, I can't either. I think it must be just one of those well, I think generic that we, things. We know so many people in common, and I think, yeah, I don't know. I mean, we go back to Jack Tinker days, and, and yes. Jack and I, who was uh, for those who don't know, was the Daily Mail theatre critic and a wonderful man. And he and I he used was. to go, and we used to go to a first night, and then we used to go to the Waldorf, and it was before mobile phones. And we used to go and sit in the Waldorf and I'd order the champagne and there was a bank of phones along one wall and he'd go and phone in from this bank of phones, no mobiles, his um, review. I'd get the champagne and then he'd come down and then we'd talk about it. And uh, so we go back to Jack days and I think, I don't know, I think we just met through various people like that. And Stuart Permit, I think, as well, we met through. Obviously, who I, he and Gary Lyons, I owe my career to because they wrote a thing called Exclusive Yarns, which I did for nothing at the Good Luck Theatre in the West End. Then it transferred to the comedy, and I invited along Maurice Scran and, and Lawrence Marks, who came, and I always remember it because the day they came was the day that um, Anne Charleston from Neighbours was in my dressing room, who I didn't know. But normally, if you go and see a show and you like it, you always say to the company manager, and you're a face, you say, oh, could I go back and meet the cast? So she came back, and, and, and that was when Lawrence said, would you like to do a sitcom? And I said, oh, yeah, well, send me a script, I said rather grandly. And he sent me two scripts from Birds of a Feather, and that changed my life. So that, I owe Stuart an awful lot, and Stuart's a wonderful writer, and he'd written Singular Women, which was a, a, a um, four monologues, and I did that as a one-person show. So I think, yes, probably through Stuart as well, but lots of people, Christopher. And then you and I would, I remember you when you and I went to um, see Joan Rivers in the West we End. We got a review. We got a bad review for laughing too much. <laughs> We were laugh because you've got a very distinctive laugh, and I can get completely hysterical. And we got a bad review for laughing too much in a comedy. So I hold my hand up. Yes, up. I laugh. Weird, isn't it? I, I remember too, Jack Tinker, who I miss terribly, and and I know you do as well. I mean, he was such a wonderful friend. Wonderful. But the, he took me to Stratford upon Avon to see the opening night of a play, and we checked into the hotel and there was this huge double bed so on the way to the theatre I said this is how you do it is it Jack this is how you get you know young actors to come up and go to the theatre with you and you, it's a double bed so we laughed and laughed and laughed so when we got back to the uh, we went did his review went to have something to eat went back to the hotel there was a double bed again so we laughed all over again so he went to the lavatory to do his teeth and what have you and I put everything movable down the centre of the bed so there were tables <laughs> mirrors uh, you know sort of brushes and things and I got in one side and then so you couldn't see the other side. He came, he came out of the bathroom, and well, we honestly, I didn't know how we got to sleep that night. It was but so that funny. is the one thing about you, Christopher. I don't think I've ever met anybody in my life, and this is singing your praises, who has such a positive take on absolutely everything. And I was talking about you last night to somebody. Can't even remember who it was. Oh, I know. Yeah, I remember who it was. A friend, David Bounds, and he said the thing about Christopher is he's a life enforcer and a life enhancer and I think you always look on the positive of absolutely everything and that is 
Yes, that's why people adore you. Anyway, moving oh, on. <laughs> moving on. <laughs> now, you've been asked to prepare three things I that have. mean something in your life. Now, have you got your first one ready? My first one, I will don't have. Show me, don't show me, don't show me. Just give me some clues as to what it is. OK, it's a doll. Right. And um, dressed in black. And... Um, is it something you were given as a child? No. Um, and it's got a German name. Um, at least I think it's German. And um, I was given to it about four years ago. Oh. And it's... Is it, is it a good luck charm for you? Not a good luck charm. It was something that was given me on a first night. Um, from the producer and his wife. What was the play? Ah, well, it was a musical. Ah. And the title was one word. Oh, no, it was two words. <laughs> it was two words beginning with Y-F. Young Frankenstein. Yes. So was this given to you by the writer? It, no, it was given to me by the producer, Michael Harris, and his wife, Catherine Harrison. Yes. And I have it here. You were absolutely wonderful uh, well, in Young Frankenstein. Do you know what? I mean, were... it, it, oh, I have so many stories to tell about Mel Brooks. I mean, oh, I, I, I can't even believe now that I worked on and off with him over a period of three months. And, um, I, I mean, I can tell you how, how we first met. Because it, it, it was one of those things. I'd been in Strictly Come Dancing. And when I got voted off, my agent then sent me an email to say, right, now that you've got a little bit more time, I can tell you that Mel Brooks is coming over and they are producing Young Frankenstein in England and uh, Michael Harrison, the producer, would like you to do a, a two-hour workshop so that you can learn some of the script, you can learn a song, and then um, Mel Brooks, when he does come over, can meet you and therefore you have something to work on. So I said, oh, that's exciting. But because I've just been doing Strictly, it didn't really quite go in what he was saying. It was a workshop. It didn't go in that it was Mel Brooks, who is a complete comedy legend, so they sent me over. I did the two-hour workshop, and at the end of it, they they recorded it, and they said, do you mind if we actually send this over to Mel Brooks? So I said, no, of course I don't. So then on the next Monday, um, I hadn't heard anything, and his agent had, had contacted Michael and said, I absolutely love this. I think Mel's going to adore it. So I thought on the Monday, he'd ring and say, yes, I love you, the part's yours. <laughs> but I didn't hear anything for at least another week. So the following Monday, I rang my agent and I said, oh, God, so I haven't heard anything, so I guess he doesn't like it. He said, no, no news is no news. It's as simple as that. Watch this space. So about two hours later, I was in a car being driven by somebody else, and he rang me and he said... I'm really sorry, Leslie, but Mel Brooks isn't coming over now. I said, oh, you're kidding. No, he's not coming over in two weeks or even three weeks, but they'd like to offer you the part. <laughs> and I burst into tears. I just, oh. And I said, what do you mean they're going to offer me the part? It took me about 20 minutes saying, what do you mean they're offering? You mean they're offering it to me without actually... What do you mean, Roger? Do you mean I've got the part? <laughs> so then I had to sit on that news for six months and not tell anybody... So fast forward to when Mel did come over and he'd cast Ross Noble as Igor and myself as Frau Blucher. Nay, because that every time you say Frau Blucher in it, somebody nays. So they said, Mel would like to meet you in the Savoy where he's staying. So would you and Ross go on this one afternoon? 
great, I said. So off I set. Ross arrived. Ross never wears suits. He didn't realise where he was going. So on the way to the Savoy, his agent rang and said, now you are dressed properly, aren't you? Because you can't wear a tracksuit and trainers like you normally do. So he said, no, I'm not. So he stopped at a gentleman's outfitters, bought new shoes, bought a tie, bought a shirt and bought a suit. By mistake, left all his clothes in the clothes shop. Arrived looking very smart and not like Ross Noble at all. I was so nervous, I downed two champagnes very, very quickly. Ross doesn't drink. A bit later, um, Mel actually arrived with about four producers and we sat there and I was literally shaking because it was Mel Brooks and he'd given me a part. And he said, what would you like to drink? And I said, well, I think I'll have a champagne cocktail. He said... You're killing me! You're killing me! It's going to cost me too much money! Anyway, I had about another two champagne cocktails, by which point I was drunk. So then, for some weird reason, I took him up a picture of me in my underwear at backstage at Strictly, and I showed it to him. And I've not a clue why. I suddenly showed him a picture of me in my underwear, pretending to be Cheetah Rivera, smoking a hairbrush... I was completely out of it. So we spent about two hours with Mel Brooks, who I completely fell in love with. And then we didn't see him again until he came over. We were in rehearsals and it was the third week and we did a read-through and he stopped me on practically every line. And I then heard from somebody afterwards that it could be that if he didn't like you at that point, you didn't appear the next day. So we were all in a terrible state and he stopped me every single line and in the end he stopped me on every line in the song and I remember just standing up saying, oh, fuck it, and belting the song out and actually he loved it. So, <laughs> And it was the only time I've ever been nominated for an Olivier. So for me at my age it meant a huge amount to be in the West End doing something which I got nominated for, working with not only him but also Susan Stroman who is a complete legend and and this wonderful cast and I loved the whole thing it was so it's here's the doll here's the doll here's the doll oh how fantastic so I mean that is an incredible high point of my career I would say because jobs like that don't come along all that often and you know when you say to somebody I'm working with Mel Brooks their mouth drops open and they say and when we finished He sent me um, a video, which I've got, to say thank you. And he said, Leslie, I just want to tell you I love you. Doesn't mean I want to marry you, but I love you. (laughs) And he said, you were better than Cloris Leachman. Don't tell Cloris that, but you were. You know, and he, he sent this amazing video. And sometimes I look at it and I think, oh, that's Mel Brooks. You know, when you've lived in your our age, you know, you know everything that he's done. And it's just... Yeah, and and that was an incredibly special time to be directed by Susan Stroman and to have Mel in rehearsals. So, yeah, you lucky girl. I, I think I, I think I am, and and I mean I think there's an awful long that, that a lot in my career that I think I've done wrong. You know, I think oh I've done too much comedy. You know, because I love straight acting as well. I absolutely adore. I love doing Chekhov. I love Shakespeare. I love all of that. But I've always radiated towards comedy because I think I love 
working on stage, doing a comedy with an audience and working off the audience. That's why I love pantomime so much, Christopher. And I've defended pantomime all my career. I have defended it. And I think until the pantomime actually got to the Palladium and people and that one in Olivier, and people suddenly thought, oh, my goodness. And then everybody started doing pantomime. But you and I have done pantomime all our lives. And I absolutely adore it. And that, that again, is working with an audience. And it's almost like stand-up. Um, and that's what I find when you're, when you're doing a comedy and you work off the audience, you duck and dive the whole time. You, something that you think will get a laugh doesn't. You duck and dive through and then you try and get a laugh somewhere else or you move on. And it's all about pushing and shoving and working as a team. And that's something that we do naturally in pantomime because, you know, that, that's what it's all about. You did um, Southampton last year, didn't you? The pantomime. Mm. Well, I only asked that uh, because I, you're going to do it this year, aren't you? Yes, I am. Do you, know, do you know where you're going? I don't know where, no. Are you doing it this year? Yeah, I'm going to go to... Uh, I, I was in, last time I did it was in Bromley, and it was a huge success. And so successful was it, they changed the name of the dressing room to the Biggins dressing room. No! I was there the year before. They didn't change it to the Leslie Joseph dressing room. You are honoured. No, you didn't do so well, Leslie. Well, um, obviously anyway. I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> No, uh, I mean, it's, it is fantastic. And I, so I was going to Dartford last year and then we were cancelled, uh, which was a shame. But so I then agreed to do it this year and that's what we're doing. And we're doing Jack and the Beanstalk, which I'm, I'm thrilled about. Um, no, it's great. And I think people like us look to pantomime for all sorts of different uh, reasons. You know, we do it for the money, which is very good. We do it for the pure audience participation. Do you know what? I mean, we did five shows in Southampton last year and um, it was socially distanced. They were wearing masks and you couldn't have singing from the audience. You couldn't do all that, you know, because often you couldn't do song sheets. You couldn't. They didn't even want people to clap in the audience. So we did a thing where you raise your hands and you sort of do an arm movement. So you know what that is, don't you, by the way, raising your hands and shaking them. It's the applause for Ah. deaf people. Right. Which is, a, so that, which is really nice, actually. You see, I love this, the um, relaxed performances. Oh, yes. Because the thing about Panto, it has to be inclusive, and I love the relaxed performances. And that, for people who don't know, is where you keep the house lights on slightly so that people can see themselves in the audience. Um, this is for people who have special needs or might not want to go to a crowded audience with lots of people who, you know... Um, if you're deaf or you're, you're, you, you have um, disabilities, you might not like sitting in a, a noisy audience, so you might go with a carer. Um, there might be a lot of wheelchair people. You know, it's a very gentle show that you feel much safer in because, you know, in pantomime, you get a lot of comedy, you also get a lot of drama and you get a lot of monsters. You can get, I mean... wonderful when you get a huge monster raising up and going out over the audience and and children can find that really really scary and they love it and some people have to leave at that point because they find it so scary Um, but that's absolutely fine you know so if you do a relaxed performance everything is taken down so the monster might be there but he won't go out over the audience the lights won't be as bright you won't get lots of firecrackers going off you won't get all the pyros going off 
so that that is something that will include everybody that doesn't want to go to a normal performance and then you will get the sign performances and you also get the strap line performances where you get where you can read what is going on on the stage so Pantomime can include everybody that will want to sit in an audience. And, you know, it, a, a lot of theatres absolutely rely on pantomime, which was so, why it was so difficult last year, where they couldn't actually earn the money that they earn over that time. Because, you know, you can't always say, well, theatres will always play safely. Theatres have to constantly be reinventing um, the genre, if you like. They have to put new works on. They have to put new plays on. They have to include people that you might not know. And during the year, they can play safe and have household names and they can do musicals that everybody will know and want to go and see. But there will be some times when they have to keep trying new things. It's really important to keep reinventing the wheel, if you like. And that's why things like pantos are so important so that the money can go in so that they can diversify slightly within the year. And, you know, when you get a standing ovation at the end and people love it and the kids love it. And I love doing it. Now, what's your next item? My next item. Give me a few clues. This is a quite serious one. Um, you won't know what it is. It's small and it holds coins. And is this something that you keep with you for good luck? No. It reminds me of a certain time in a certain country that I love and it was made by people who'd had a very hard time. Um, is it where your son was, uh, where he was at university? Yeah. College, yes. So is it Japanese? Yes, it is. It's beautiful. And it's a tiny purse. And this is made by kimonos that were washed up from the tsunami which happened, which was thousands of people lost their lives. And... I've got a letter that came with it that says it's made from kimonos that were washed up in the tsunami by old ladies in the temporary housing. A prayer for recovering, turning for recovery, turning wreckage into something new, a little money, an occupation. And it may be small, but it means an awful lot. And um, it was the most devastating time. And it's very strange because I've always loved Japan. I don't know why, but I found recently, I mean, I've got pictures when I went out there of me dressed as a geisha, which take hours to put on. And you know, like you and I always do our Christmas cards. So one yes. of my Christmas cards was hello from Granny Geisha. And uh, <laughs> it was me dressed as a geisha. And I've always loved it. I love Japanese theatre. I love no theatre. Now, no theatre you can go to and you can sit there for a whole day. You literally, it can be eight hours and you take little bento boxes and your little um, things that you eat them with, chopsticks. Honestly, I've got such <laughs> lockdown brain. And you will sit there and a lot of ladies in kimonos. And the other wonderful thing about Japanese um, theatre is if you go to Kabuki, see, I love no theatre, I love Bunraku. And Bunraku is where they have the huge puppets, um, which it can take years to train. And sometimes eight people will work a puppet. I mean, it, 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 it's extraordinary, the, the skill that they need. And the other one is, is um, Kabuki. And at Kabuki... 
people will sit in the, if there's one, two, three tiers of um, theatre, the people in the top, if somebody does something rather wonderful on stage, they shout out and it's expected of them. So let's say you were doing Hamlet. Um, let's say it was a Japanese play. And when you got to to be or not to be, somebody upstairs would say, I love this speech. This is the best speech in Hamlet. You're doing it brilliantly. <laughs> and so people will just shout things out and shout things out. And the first time I ever went to Kabuki, I said, look, I thought, my God, somebody, they've let somebody in who's shouting. And then you realise that that's what they do. And the theatre there, I just adore it. I, I don't know what it is. And I found the other day something from when I was a child, which is a little long wooden box and it is a geisha made of paper that I was given when I was about eight, I think. And it, there it is. It's in a little... I, I could have done that, but this this sort of meant a lot because it's a more serious thing. Um, and I, And it's beautifully made and just... Yeah, it reminds me I've kept all the papers that were about at that time because it was a devastating time. Um, and yes, I, I mean, I, I, I never forget the first time I went to Japan. I'd arranged to meet some people in Kyoto. And Kyoto is the old, old um, city where, you know, a lot of geisha live. And um, we arranged to meet in a kimono shop. It was a very, very old shop and you had to make an appointment to go... And we were in the shop and I just stepped off a plane and unfortunately I passed wind. <laughs> and it, it, it's very serious in places like that. And you stand there and there's a lot of bowing and there's a lot of formal acknowledgement of the fact that you're there. And I suddenly went... <laughs> and I couldn't help it because I was exhausted. And the lady we were meeting just suddenly went... Boop, boop. Boop, boop. I, had to, I had to leave the shop. Oh, God, that's funny. I actually had to leave the shop. I've never recovered from it. It was oh, absolutely dear. hysterical. Look, my hands are going like this. You can see me just thinking about it. And I just thought, of all the places to do it, in a very formal Japanese kimono shop. <laughs> Did you go back later? No, I didn't. <laughs> but I, <laughs> I spent a lot of time travelling around. Uh, we went to Hiroshima. I spent a lot of time travelling around Japan. And um, it's extraordinary. It, you go to gardens, which are those amazing, where it's all rocks in the middle of a lot of pebbles. And oh, there's just something so relaxing and so spiritual about the whole place um, and I love all the uh, shrines that you go to there um, and I would I would spend six months of the year there if I could I, I think it's beautiful as a country, I think the history of it is amazing um, and the other thing is I love anime and I love um, oh, you see, I've got such lockdown brain Christopher, I can't <laughs> there's um, a film called Spirited Away, I think, which is from the Ghibli studio, which is one of my favourite films. And um, I could watch the Japanese movies all the time. I just don't know. I don't know what it is about Japan. And when my son went to uni there and he did Japanese at, at um, 
university and then he went to live there and went went to to college and um, so if he ever wants to say something I don't understand he just speaks in Japanese but it is yes it's a country I've completely fallen in love with and I realize that it goes back a long way because I found this little geisha that I've kept all these years and yeah, it's extraordinary. It, it, it's a country that means a lot to me. I must say, I'd love to go. And I'd love to go to that shop in Fart. That's what I'd like to do. <laughs> I know I could find out where it was if you did. I know I could, my darling. I mean, I've never done that in public before. Well, I have done it in public, actually. I have done it in public. But, yes, kept it very quiet. But there you couldn't keep it quiet because we were bowing and saying... So quiet. It was so quiet. We were bowing and saying hello to somebody and introducing ourselves. And I couldn't actually even pretend it wasn't me because... Oh, it's, it's a wonderful story. A oh, wonderful story. God. Now, listen, we're going to go and have a little break now. But when we come back, I'm going to show you or I want you to, to guess what my item is. OK. See you in a minute. My first item is a record sleeve of a very famous American singer. And it's personalised with a signature from this... I know who this is. Who is it? Frank Sinatra. No, it's not. Oh, it's not. It might be then Liza Minnelli. Yes, it is Liza Minnelli. Ah, live at Carnegie. Has she written it to you? She has. Now, it's faded... I mean, I saw her at because fascinatingly enough, when you're a big star like Liza Minnelli, and you are a big star, Leslie, when you sign something to people, your 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 fans, Liza had someone who had absolutely perfected her signature. So in the in the dressing room, she used to sit in the corner signing different bits of paper, record sleeves, all these sort of things. And it was absolutely perfect. But I know that this one was actually signed by Liza because um, I I was there when she signed it. You see, that's the thing about you, Christopher. I mean, not only are you wonderful to everybody, but you do know an awful lot of famous people. I don't know how you've managed it because I thought that was Frank Sinatra because I know you've told me you're Frank Sinatra. So tell me again. Tell me the Frank Sinatra story. Well, I was I was staying with Liza Minnelli. I stayed with Liza. I, stayed, <laughs> I was staying with Joan Collins in Los Angeles and there was a couple in, uh, in Los Angeles who were the king and queen of Hollywood and he was a multi-billionaire oil man called Marvin Davis and his wife was called Barbara. And Barbara rang me one day and she said, Christopher, we're having a 97th birthday party for George Burns. Would you like to come? So I said, I'd love to. So I was very excited, ran round the uh, the, the uh, flat that I was staying in with Joan. And uh, v- that night we went to the party and it was held in the foyer of their house. Uh, I was very excited about going. The day came when uh, the party happened and we went and the party was held in the foyer of their house and there were 300 of us. Uh, so, sorry, can you stop? 300 people got in the foyer of their house. Of the foyer of their house. There were 30 tables of 10 and each table was star-studded. There was the Joan Collins table, there was the Jackie Collins table, there was the Sidney Poitier table, there was the Michael Caine table. It was unbelievable. So I sat 
down. And next to me on my right was Shakira Kane, who I knew and was enchanting. Next to Shakira, there was Frank Sinatra. Next to Frank, there was our hostess. Next to our hostess was uh, George Burns. Next to George Burns was one of the daughters of the of the couple. And then next to her was Dan Aykroyd. And Dan Aykroyd said to me, pinch yourself, Biggins. You don't often get nights like this. Well, I thought, I don't, I thought... George Burns, yes, but Frank Sinatra. I thought, I can't let this moment go by. So I said, Frank. I called him Sir, and I called him Mr Sinatra. And eventually he said to me, Christopher, call me Frank. So I thought, well, I can't let the moment go by. So I said, Frank, about eight years ago, I played Nathan Detroit in Guys and Dolls. And he said, you know, Christopher, so did I. I thought, that's it now. I can die and go to heaven. And he asked me to go after the party. He asked me to go into the foyer, uh, another area, a uh, hallway outside this foyer. And uh, whilst he had a cigarette, because he didn't want his wife to see him having a cigarette. And he, the, so it was one wonderful conversation. I mean, it was extraordinary. It is. I mean, it, I can't imagine being in the same room as all those people. I think I'd be terrified. I wouldn't know how to hold my own in a conversation. But that's, again, one thing that you do is you're you're able to communicate on their level somehow. I, I don't know. I mean, it just... It's so exciting. That's wonderful. It is. We were we were shopping too one day, Joan and I, uh, and uh, we bumped into Tina Turner. And uh, so Tina went, Joan! And Joan went, Tina! And they chatted and, and they said, this is my friend Biggins. And they were oh, how lovely, blah, blah, blah. And about 10 minutes they talked and then she eventually, she went, she left, said goodbye. And I said, how long have you known Tina? She said, I've never met, met her before in my life. Ah! How funny. Would you know, funnily enough, I've got a friend, Christian Holder, who used to dance with the Joffrey Ballet over there, who actually used to um, design costumes, who actually made one of Tina's most iconic skirts that she wore um, in one of her, you know, when she'd do the shaking and everything. And uh, I've got a wonderful picture of Tina and Christian. So he did actually work with her making clothes, um, which... I must say, she was wonderful. I mean, you know, wonderful... How? I, I, I've met her twice. I met her in uh, a party given by Richard Caring, uh, and it was a, a, an amazing party. It, was, uh, it raised something like 180 million or something. And she was the second cabaret artist. The first was Elton John. And she was on, you know, he she he was on first because he wanted to get away. He was born. And she uh, was on second. And she was fantastic. And I, I said hello to her and she remembered meeting me in, in uh, the shop. It was very funny. The, the wonderful thing about that story is, of course, that famous people, all famous people know each other, even though they've never met. You know, I mean, it is, it is truly wonderful. You could go and say something to somebody who you meet. Frank Sinatra, who you happen to be sitting next to at a table. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. Unbelievable. Well, that's... Uh, that's my uh, Liza Minnelli, uh, and uh, you've got one more item, my brother. I have. Okay, do you want to guess? Yes. It's in a box. Right. Shall I read you what's on the outside? Yes. Medaglia Pontific- Pontificia Anno 6. Right, so I think it's Italian. Yep. And I think I know what this is because I know what happened to you on a certain uh, reality TV programme. And I think it's from the Pope. It is from the Pope. It's the medal that the Pope gave me. And this... Oh, my goodness. So I have to tell you the story. I mean, there were eight of us walking from the Swiss Alps to Rome. 
As you do. As you do. <laughs> and we slept in a different night, uh, a bed, every night for 16 nights. Now, that's not easy, Christopher, living in bunk beds, getting up six in the morning. Um, we Sometimes we were in a coach, sometimes we walked, but the last 100 kilometres you had to walk on your own. I went over the Swiss Alps. I met St Bernard dogs. I went, I mean, I can't tell you. I was with Les Dennis. I was with Dana. I was with Stephen K. Amos, Brendan Cole, Greg Rutherford. <clears throat> I was with some amazing people and we walked to Rome. I, the reason I went, and I learned about this while I was doing Young Frankenstein, and the reason why I wanted to go was, number one, the idea of going on a pilgrimage for me was going to be fantastic. But secondly, I think it was the idea of walking to Rome because I'd never been to Rome. So I thought... This is a double whammy. I have to do it. I want to be with a group of people walking down an old Roman road to walk into a, an ancient city that I've never been to. So we set off and we did the first 900 kilometres, as I say, sometimes in a coach, sometimes walking. And it was an amazing experience and I absolutely adored it. One day we walked something like 18 miles. And when we got there, I had so much to drink. I've never been so drunk in my life. But it finished, we had to walk the last 100 kilometres actually into Rome. And when we got to Rome, we were told, right, um, tomorrow you're meeting the Pope. And we all said, what, you mean we're going to St Peter's Square? No, you're having an audience with the Pope. <laughs> and none of us could actually believe it. And he'd been away somewhere and literally arrived back that night. So eight o'clock the next morning... We went what I call backstage at the Vatican. Now, the day before, I've got now one of the things on my wall is my uh, pilgrims. It's in Latin to say that I'd walked the pilgrimage. Therefore, I was a, a bona fide pilgrim, walked the Via Francigena. So um, we went what I call backstage of the Vatican through the Swiss guards. And we went to this room and there were eight of us sitting round. And five minutes later, the Pope walked in. <laughs> And we had half an hour with him. But what was funny was he had to come to us. Stephen K. Omos was on my left. I was there. We just had to shake our hands and introduce ourselves and say what we did. Just Leslie Joseph, actress, would have done. But no. For some reason, <laughs> I went into pure acting mode. And I went, oh, hello, your holiness. My name is Leslie Joseph and I'm 72 years old. And I've just walked 100 kilometres on the Via Francigena. And I feel incredibly rejuvenated, both emotionally, spiritually and mentally. <laughs> and he burst out laughing. <laughs> and he said, you don't look 72. And I said, I know I don't, do I? And carried on laughing. <clears throat> Greg Rutherford was on my right and he thought, I don't know what to say. So he just said, oh, hello, Greg Rutherford, Olympic champion. Went round to Les Dennis and Les said something like, oh, hello, your holiness, my mother's your greatest fan. <laughs> so we carried on and he sat down and we had half an hour's conversation with the Pope, which was extraordinary. I mean, I, I still can't believe it. So at the end of this conversation, he came round and he came to me and he hugged me and he kissed me and he gave me the medal, as he did to all of us, which was to celebrate, he just had 2,000 made to celebrate six years in the papacy. So he came, he gave me a hug, kissed my cheek, gave me the medal, and then he burst out laughing again and he said, 
you still don't look 72. At which point I put my arm on his arm and I said, oh, bless you. <laughs> and everybody fell about. They said, I can't believe you just blessed the Pope. And when we got outside, they said, Leslie, you blessed the Pope. I said, I know, but I often say bless you to somebody. I just do it. You know, if you if you suddenly said, oh, you look gorgeous, I'd say, oh, bless you. Bless That's you. What, bless you. That's what sometimes we do in this business. We exaggerate a little bit with certain things. And bless you is something that I say quite a lot. Sometimes I feel quite spiritual. And I didn't even realise I was doing it to the Pope. And I said, oh, bless you. But I did make him laugh. Somebody said he was obviously a Birds of a Feather fan. So this uh, is an extraordinary memory of... I mean, when I think that this business that we do, this business that we call show, has actually meant I could work with somebody like Mel Brooks, who is a complete legend, Susan Stroman, and I could meet the Pope and have half an hour with the Pope through... When I call it a reality show, but actually... I don't think of it as a reality show because I think it's so much more than that. It was like a, a spiritual awakening for so many of you. It, it was an extraordinary experience of, of sleeping in a different bed for 16 nights and walking into the ancient city of Rome with a group of pilgrims. And I would go back and do it again tomorrow um, if somebody said, OK. And the thing about that was that the stops were all organised for you, so you knew where you were actually going to go and sleep that night. But some nights we hardly slept at all and, and eating, you know, it was it was all potluck. But if somebody said, you will do that as a result of being an actress in this business, it, it would be something that you'd say, yes, God, my goodness, that's a blessing to be able to be able to do that, which is was so exciting. We're, we're so lucky to be actors. I mean, that is... It, it, and it does open so many doors. And it, it's very, very exciting. It really is. I think it is. And I think, I think when reality TV first came in, I think people were very... Oh, you know, they're allowing people on television who shouldn't be on television, who aren't actors, who aren't entertainers. And I always said, this is a progression. Just embrace it. There will be some people who probably won't ever be on television again because they don't like it. There will be some people who don't work. There will be some people who are suddenly discovered to be stars. It will open the door to things that we can do that instead of just entertaining. I know you've done a lot. I know you went to America um, uh, to do the programme about pot. And, um, you know, that was an experience. That was a unique experience to travel around the States and smoke dope or whatever you did on it that <laughs> yeah. you would never have done had you not been in that program because on that program it will all have been regulated even if of you course. did eat too much ice cream but you know it, it there it, it opens doors for us to do as well who thought of us as being actors and i know that you had got to a point where you said i love being biggins now i love doing what biggins does which is so much stuff that's very exciting and very outside of just being a performer and an entertainer. It's being you. And I think that's what the business can do a lot now. It can just open certain doors for you. And that Pope's... Oh, it's just... Medal, medal is wonderful. My medal from the Pope. <laughs> <laughs> it's better than the Olympic one. Oh, yes, yes. Much better than the Olympic medal, darling. 
I mean, yes. Well, Greg Rutherford's got a medal from the Pope and an Olympic medal, so he's got a double <laughs> whammy. But I don't think he blessed the Pope. I don't think he blessed him. Uh, Leslie, you've been a, a blessing as always. You've been absolutely fantastic. And thank you very much for joining me today on Show and Tell. Um, now, we've had, you've had a doll from Young Frankenstein, you've had a purse from Japan, and you've had a medal from the Pope. I think you probably, out of all the people we've had on this show, you've won the uh, the gifts section. The diversity of my gifts. Di- diversity, absolutely. I love you, and uh, we'll, we'll meet very soon, darling. Yes, please, love you too. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Show and Tell podcast. If you want to hear more conversations like this one, make sure you follow Show and Tell with Biggins on the podcast provider of your choice. And if you'd be so kind as to tell your friends about the podcast, I'd be ever so grateful. You can also follow us on social media. We're at Biggins Podcast. Goodbye. Goodbye.